This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Jen Wilkin and JT English have given you an invitation. They want you to know and love God well. Well, Sounds good, right? It's hard to imagine any of us turning down that offer. There's just one catch. You need to become a theologian. Well, uh (laughs) uh-oh. But you can do it. You were built for it. That is the theme of their new book, You Are a Theologian, published by B&H. They're bringing theology to the masses, something they've been doing together for many years. You know Jen Wilkin as a Bible teacher from Dallas, Texas, and author of many books, including Women of the Word, How to Study the Bible with Both Our Hearts and Our Minds. And like Jen, JT is a repeat gospel-bound guest. He's a, past, he's a pastor in Colorado and author of Deep Discipleship, How the Local Church Can Make Whole Disciples. Now, this paragraph sums up their work in You Are a Theologian. Quote, theology is not done exclusively or even primarily in the classroom. It is done in everyday life, every minute of every day. We are doing theology when we preach, pray, and sing, but we are also doing theology when we go to work, when we take a vacation, as we care for an aging parent, as we fight sin, as we raise kids, as we mourn the loss of a loved one, as we spend our money, and as we grow old. You are a theologian, and you are always doing theology." End quote. They deliver on the premise in this book that I think works well in Sunday schools, youth groups, college discipleship, leader training, and more. And so I'm eager to talk now with them on Gospel Bound about misunderstood doctrines, favorite doctrines, favorite theologians, theological training in the church, men and women together in the church, and more, all in just half an hour or so. Jen and JT, thanks for joining me again on Gospel Bound. Thanks for having us on, Colin. Got Glad to be here. All right, Jen, let's start with you. What is a theologian? Well, a theologian is anyone who has words about God. I mean, the word uh, theology or theologian is the combination of two words that just mean uh, words about God. And so uh, whether you're an agnostic or an atheist or a Christian, we all have words about God or thoughts about God. Uh, And so it's important that as those who call on the name of Christ, that we be distinctly Christian theologians in the words that we say. Now, I think most of us know there are people who are vocational theologians who uh, live in uh, academia and who devote hours and hours to studying theology. So I think sometimes we can think that's a term that doesn't apply to us. But in a very real sense, every single one of us is a theologian who's responsible for making sure that the words we have about God are as accurate as possible. JT, has theologian always been kind of a a dirty word? 
in some sections of the church, or is there something peculiar to our our own age or even just American evangelicalism that makes people think, huh, that doesn't seem to match. I, I can't imagine myself being a theologian. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's always been a dirty word, but for lots of us, it's always been an intimidating word, a word that we didn't uh, identify ourselves with. So part of my story is coming to faith in college uh, and then eventually going to seminary and being really intimidated. I really felt like an imposter in my first class. Uh, I was there with a bunch of students who came from Bible colleges and other universities, and it seemed like they belonged, and it was just systematic theology 101. I was the kind of student that didn't even know what that meant at the time. I could understand and put together the word systematic, but theology just felt like this intimidating term. What is that? Am I that? Am I supposed to be doing that? Do I have to do that? I wanted to be go be a, a, a missionary on a college campus. Do I need to be a theologian in order to go reach college students? And the professor came in, and, and uh, he has you know a PhD from Cambridge and a master's degree from Trinity, and I was just so intimidated by him that I thought I should probably, you know, endure this class but leave uh, as soon as soon as I can afterwards, and you know, unenroll from seminary. But he really helpfully in that class helped me define theology, and if we define it, it's not intimidating and it's not a dirty word. It's just mm-hmm. it's just a it's really two Greek words put together. Uh, that I hope many of your listeners know, but if you don't, it's just two words, theos and logos, which mean God and the study of, or words about, logos being words. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is if we understand theology with that basic definition, words about God, we come to the realization that it's not intimidating. The truth of the matter is we are, are already theologians. There is no person living today or in the past or in the future that doesn't have thoughts about God, uh, ideas about God, uh, understandings of him, uh, whether they be evangelical Christians or whether they be postmodern secularists or atheists, everybody has a word or thought and idea about God. So the question isn't, are you a theologian? It really is, are you a good theologian? And that's really why we wrote the book, is we wanted to say, you're invited to this task. You shouldn't feel intimidated by it. You shouldn't think it's not you. We want to invite you into thinking about God and knowing and loving him well. I'm going to ask both of you this next question, but um, JT, you don't get any time to prepare. So Jen, you can prepare your (laughs) your answer here. Uh, JT, in your work through the church, which doctrine is most commonly misunderstood? Oh, man. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which, which, yeah. This is a tough one to pick. Just Just pick one. We need the Wheel of Fortune. (laughs) Like, what's it going to land on? I'd say all of them. If I was picking one right now, if I'm pressed, I would say the doctrine of what it means to be a human. You know, the Mm -hmm. church over history, has thought really well about uh, the doctrine of God at Nicaea, the doctrine of Christ, Chalcedon, the Reformation, doctrine of soteriology, and the Bible and its authority in our lives. And so we need those thoughts. We need to keep reading those thinkers and invite those into the life of our church. One of the things that I don't think we've done as well as we could is the doctrine of what it means to be a human or anthropology. So what it means to bear God's image and be a person of dignity, value, and worth, not because of what you contribute to society, because of what you do, or because of some fundamental identity, whether that's race, ethnicity, could be socioeconomic status or education. But Christians have this unique idea that every single human being is made with dignity and value and worth, and that should be democratized. And we're entering, and Jen and I have had this conversation a bit, entering into phases, whether it's uh, what evangelicals have been really pressing on the last several decades about 
the right to life, but also thinking about that from uh, not just the womb, but all the way to the tomb or to the mm-hmm. grave, but also some of the pressing challenges around artificial intelligence and what it means to be a thinking being and what it means to have function in society. So I think the church over the next several decades is going to have to give a lot of time to thinking about what it means to be a human. All right, Jen, you're up. Yeah, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I actually don't think it's a misunderstood doctrine so much as it's just a neglected doctrine, and that's the doctrine of God. Um, It'd be no secret to you that I would answer that, because I've written a couple of books on the doctrine of God for that purpose, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I do think that, you know, in an age that is starved for transcendence, we need the restoration of this doctrine in the Church, um, Mm -hmm. and particularly within the Church, where... Um, just the, the whole therapeutic approach to faith that has crept in, uh, individualism and instant gratification are as, every bit as much a hallmark of believers as they are of the culture at large. And we need a vision of God high and lifted up. We need something to right-size us and to direct our focus on what is most important and really what is most beautiful. Uh, and so it's the reclamation of the doctrine of God and restoring it to its proper place. And I think it's interesting that um, my answer and JT's answer, and we didn't get together and talk about this beforehand, are both like the two doctrines that you start with, like the most, mm-hmm. the two most basic doctrines yeah. uh, would be the doctrine of God and the doctrine of humanity. So mm. um, we were we were talking earlier and saying you could pretty much throw a rock and hit a doctrine. Someone needs to know and needs to know better than they do. Uh, but yeah, those that would be mine that comes to mind. It's Calvin's dual focus, right? Knowledge of God, yeah. knowledge of self, starting yeah. right there. Uh, Jen, I'll stick with you on this one. Uh, this is a, I think it's it's connected to what we've just been discussing. But what are the most important implications of rooting our identity in God? Well, uh, I think you know it, it means that we're not self-defined. Um, anybody would know if you think about even um, a book or a, a piece of art, any creative act that we understand in a human sense, we know that we don't get to assign meaning to something that someone else made. Uh, so, for example, uh, I don't get to uh, tell um, Ernest Hemingway what his book means. I don't get to tell uh, da Vinci what his painting means. Now, it may be that we speculate about the meaning and we, we take time trying to find out what the meaning is because we no longer have access to the person who uh, created that thing in the first place. Um, but when it comes to God and his creation, of which we are a part, we do have access to his thoughts on the why behind our creation. And so um, understanding our identity is rooted in him in, in the sense that our origin is in him is going to shape the way that we understand our purpose and where we belong. I like it. Um, I'm going to go back to you, JT, on this one. And, but Jen, I'll, I expect to hear from you on this one as well. Adam's first response to Eve, as you guys write in the book, is to observe oh, this their... this is Jen's question. No, no, no. <laughs> no. I'll, I'll Make JT answer. Nope. Let's nope. see. It'll be a pop nope. quiz. Yep. <laughs> um, Hang on, let me get yeah. my notes out. <laughs> Adam's first response to Eve is to observe their similarity, mm-hmm. not their difference. Yeah. What do you want to see for men and women working together as theologians in the church? Oh, man. Yeah, we. this is a, a question that Jen and I have tried to devote a lot of time to, not just in terms of writing, but our lives, really. And even in some sense, our relationship as being brothers and sisters in ministry contexts. We also want to emphasize it's important to recognize differences. We're not, mm-hmm. we're not suggesting that men and women are the same entirely. As you just noted, that God created uh, Adam and Eve, male and female, God created them. So mm-hmm. we want to emphasize those things. But Adam's first instinct— I'll never forget this moment. I'm not. I, I don't want to relive it in in deep ways, but I'll never forget. When I was talking about Genesis two with one of my colleagues, and 
we went to Jen's office and we were like, let's talk about anthropology and gender and roles in the church and all those things as we were at a church that was thinking through some of this. And we were like, you see, it just shows how different they are. And she was like, guys, <laughs> sit down for a second. <laughs> she got her lectern out and, and started this giving us so a lecture. Fake. <laughs> <laughs> it is a little fake. It is a little fake. It was more collegial than this. But she showed us, and helpfully, and this, I think, demonstrates the point of our need for each other, mm-hmm. of, of Jen just uh, helpfully helping us see that Adam's first instinct is to say, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha because she was taken out of Ish. Like, these are two of the same thing. Right after Adam has gotten done taxonomizing the other animals as lions and tigers and bears, oh my, he realizes he has no uh, uh, complementarian uh, ally. He has no, no nobody to like him. And so one of our instincts in evangelicalism, rightly so, should be there are differences here, but that difference only makes sense as we first understood each other as same, which means image bearer, which means ministry partner. We often talked about in our previous ministry context that the Great Commission does not go forward through one gender alone, either male or female. It actually goes mm-hmm. forward through both male and female, whether that's in a marital relationship or in a brotherly, sisterly relationship in the life of the local church. And so one of the things that Jen and I have worked hard at trying to create in the life of the churches that that we had the opportunity to participate in was environments that allowed men and women to do theology together for the very reason of of the relationship that Jen and I and Kyle, our colleague, and others have developed of, man, we we didn't realize our need for each other until we realized it, and now we don't know what we would do without it. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jen. Jen, did I pass any part of the quiz? <laughs> well, I was going to say, and one of the sweet things about the environments that um, that came to be in the churches where we served was, you know, if you look at what happens in Genesis 3, collaboration gives way to competition after the fall, right? The man and the woman are created to collaborate, but after the fall, they compete with one another. They, They seek to rule each other instead of to work with each other. And so in these environments that are in the church, it's almost like a little bit of a taste of what it might have been like in Eden or what it will be like in the New Jerusalem, where it's collaboration. Uh, it's an opportunity for there to be shared dialogue and celebration of what's true about God, what's true about humanity, our shared understanding of what went wrong, what's the solution, uh, what's the nature of the church, where is it all going, what's going to happen in the end. And um, when you remove the competitive element out of that space and it becomes um, spurring one another on uh, in, in good deeds and also in learning, um, you just see some really uh, nice collaborative results happen. Uh, in many cases, uh, people have never experienced it before because they've only ever been perhaps in a single gender space. For women in particular, there have been a lot of doors between us and, and theological education of any kind. Um, if you think about how common the advice is to a man in ministry that he should be careful in his relationships with women who are not his wife. And it's not that there's nothing to that, but if our first foot forward is this is a risk category instead of a disciple, then it's no wonder that we find so many female spaces in the church starved for good theology. So this is a remedy, uh, hopefully, to start to address that. Give me the first thing you'd recommend to a church, Jen. They bring you in, they want to grow in this area, first thing you tell them to do. Well, we always say that it's a good idea to start with Bible study. Um, That's a good space to start introducing theological concepts. Um, But then our next step that we usually recommend is to have a space where you're learning uh, theology, where you're learning systematic and biblical theology in a, in a structured way with a, with a person who is able 
to run that conversation and invite people into dialogue. And this is a really significant piece of it. Um, JT and I talk a lot about the importance of restoring to the local church the active, dedicated learning environment. For many of us, our experience of coming to the church and learning is of a passive learning environment where we sit and we receive content from an expert on a platform and we're essentially the amateur in the pews. And we don't want that to be the case. We actually think that there is a lot of work to be done to diminish that expert-amateur divide, that the person on the platform should be inviting the person in the pews toward them by giving them tools so that they can be better thinkers and uh, better uh, educated in what the Bible is teaching. And that means that um, we are asking the student to do work. We're giving the student things to do to partner in the learning process. Everybody who's ever taken a class that really had an impact on them knows that it was because it wasn't just sitting and soaking. It was that you were invited mm. into discussion and that you had work that you did on your own and that you talked about with peers and that you heard from a, a, a well-equipped teacher on, on what was happening. So that's what we're hoping to see. Are these always mixed gender environments, Jen? Not always, no. Uh, in fact, in my own church, we have maintained single gender spaces in our Bible studies. And it's partially by design, but also has to do just with space limitations, frankly. Uh, I always say that it's important to have a both and. I know JT agrees with that as well. Everybody knows that if you're in a single gender small group, you're going to be able to have uh, different kinds of discussions around sin patterns or around challenges that you're facing in life than you do in a mixed gender group. Um, but in our case, we have the um, theological training spaces as mixed gender. You could have mixed gender Bible study, but it's important to ask just strategically, where are we going to maintain spaces for just men or just women? And then where are we going to cultivate spaces where men and women are in dialogue with each other? Jen, I don't know where this answer is going to go, which are the best questions. So, you know, you and I have known each other a long time. <laughs> I'll just uh, just hop right in on this one. Um I think almost every church environment I've been in, and it might be because of um, the age or class or I don't know, it could be any number of things, there are a lot more environments for women to do this, and women are much more eager to be able to do it. I've seen very few environments where men are doing this, and I'm wondering if this is coinciding in some ways with how women are excelling in so many ways in education now compared to men, especially as they're receiving those environments. I just, I can't really make sense of this. Like why, maybe was there at some point we we were doing a lot of this? Has this trailed off for men, do you think? I, I don't know. What what do you see? I, I just, I said, I don't know where this answer is going. Well, I actually think uh, that what we saw over the last 30 or 40 years was an increased emphasis on community as the primary focus for gathering. Yeah. And I'm all about community. I love community. I want to be at a church that has community groups. So this is not everybody ditch your community groups. But it became pretty much the standard for any gathering that the highest stated goal was going to be to build community. And in the course of that, I think that um, all of the discipleship, true training environments sort of trailed off. A lot of people just straight did away with Sunday school. Um, they thought that the mechanism was broken instead of that perhaps the delivery of the content was the issue that was at stake. 
Um, another factor that I think that plays into this is uh, assuming that women's spaces are led by women and men's spaces are led by men, yeah. just for the, for the sake of the argument. What I find often is that men in ministry have been trained how to preach, but not always how to teach. Yeah. And so when they step into a classroom space, you get the expert amateur dynamic yeah. instead of a dialogic space. So I think that contributes to it. That makes a lot of sense. JT, JT I would imagine you got some thoughts. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, JT. No, I, yeah, no, I think I agree with all of that. I, I would, I would emphasize more and just spend a little more time specifically on the relationship between an active learning environment and a community-driven space, and how, <clears throat> given specific gender dynamics, again, normatively, normatively, that a, a community-driven space means one thing for a woman and a different thing for a man. Mm -hmm. Uh, and when you have an active learning environment, you're inviting perhaps both genders into dialogue together mm -hmm. that isn't so much built around community, but is actually built around content. And mm -hmm. so when, what we found both at the church that I currently lead and, and uh, at the village is we found that uh, I was expecting, just to be candid, when we started the training program at the village, which was our mixed gender active learning environment, my expectation, this is nine years ago now, uh, which feels crazy to think about. I was thinking this is going to be... 30 people, probably 27 men and three women who are just extra motivated. <laughs> like that was kind of just where I was, kind of like a young guns, just people who want to read Bavink and systematic theology and memorize scripture. And what we had was the exact opposite. I was expecting 30 people or so. We had 429 people apply that first year, about 60% of them being female, because what we did is we we, we didn't realize we were doing this. We, we stumbled into something, is that when you democratize this kind of theological education in the life of the church, is though education might be available to women outside the context of the church, theological education is often not available to evangelical mm -hmm. women. And so... Mm -hmm. What we found is, is these, uh, both men and women, but women specifically, were flocking to these training spaces because they had been used to devotionally driven, feelings-based mm -hmm. learning environments that yeah. actually didn't help them grow, but helped them feel. And we said, we actually think you're a thinker, and we want you to develop a, a love for God that is based upon a knowledge for God. What they started saying to Jen and I and our other colleagues were, is, is they were saying, finally. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't like we we had to like market this for them and convince them to do it. They were saying... Why has this taken so long? We've been asking for this for a very long time. So um, I do think, obviously, in the, kind of the secular world right now, there's a huge gap between male and female in the educational divide. In the church, I think it's candidly, uh, my, my experience has been it's a little bit opposite, is men have far more access and uh, yeah. ability to receive that kind of education, mm -hmm. where women have, have kind of had some barriers. But when you democratize theological education to the life of the church, you actually allow both men and women to participate together. And I'm, I was sort of the poster child for this. Like for years, I had told myself, I'm going to go and survey a class down at DTS, you know, in Dallas. I'm gonna, but that's, that's 45, 50 minutes from my home. And I kept thinking, I'm going to find the money, I'm going to find the time, yeah. and I'm going to do it. Uh, but I had, you know, kids of a certain age or whatever. Well, you put it in the local church and you say, hey, this is going to cost you, you know, $200 instead of whatever it's going to cost you to take a class at a, at a seminary. Uh, yeah. We're going to watch the kids for you. Um, and it happens right here in your neighborhood. And all of a sudden, these, these, these yeah. spaces that I never could, I and so many other women just never could get past the hurdles to get into are open wide. And, and, and we just had a, a huge response. I think, Jen, this is connected to a question I was planning to ask a little bit later, but I'll bring it in here. In a changing world, we need more doctrinal cha uh, training in the church. Mm -hmm. I think we'd mm -hmm. all agree on that. Mm -hmm. But Western lifestyles seem to make this goal less plausible. 
Jen, you've taught me a lot about this. I'll start with you. What do we do about this? Well, I think it's counterintuitive. I think that what the church has done for 30 or 40 years is apologize for asking for people's time and then uh, continually lower the bar on what we're asking from them when they do show up. And uh, we all know that discipline is not dead at all. We watch the people in our churches commit to run marathons and do whole 30. Uh, Discipline (laughs) is not dead. It just follows the most compelling message. And so what we as church leaders have probably failed to do is to give a compelling vision and then offer something that's substantive enough that people are drawn to it. And so what JT and I have seen repeatedly is that people actually like when you raise the bar. It's what everybody else who's asking for their time or their money, whether for them or with their kids, is doing. And so when people seek to allocate their discretionary time, they want to give it to something meaningful. Uh, If the church stands there apologetically and says, well, would you just try this and maybe we'll have you don't, you don't have to do any homework, just show up, just show up. We communicate a value. And, And, you know, the scariest place that I think we do this is, is with students. Yeah. Uh, right. right at the point that their their high school teacher is telling them to speak a foreign language and learn physics, uh, we're telling them, you know what, if you'll just have a 10-minute Devo and, you know, maybe come to student night for some games once a week, um, that's going to be spiritually formative enough for you where, uh, you know, the whole rest of the week you're being formed by every single other thing in your environment. JT, want to add anything there? I, no. Okay. That's exactly. I mean, no. yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, I'll give this one to you then. Um, you say exile is not just an event, but a biblical pattern. Um, I'd love for you to give some examples of that and explain what difference this perspective makes in our interpretation or application. I'll go ahead and, and offer a bit of a leading um, answer on this because this most definitely comes up in a lot of conversations about theonomy, Christian nationalism, all that kind of mm. stuff. So, but you don't have to go that direction. That's just that one feels of the super that safe. Let's about. talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> we can yeah, we can make this as unsafe as you <laughs> I got want. Some ideas. Let's just bring in the listeners. Now. Come on, <laughs> yeah. got to build the brand. <laughs> go ahead, JT. Exile. Yeah, no, I think, biblical pattern. So, I want to think about exile for for a moment. But one of the things that's been fun in my partnership with Jen is she is a she is. Uh, trained in literature. I'm trained in systematic theology, so we kind of have the Bible and theology side by side always. I have the Nicene Creed out, and she has, uh, you know, Colossians 1 out. And so it's been really good to think through theological issues and biblical issues together, as as the Bible and theology is obviously two sides of the same coin, and we want to be thinking biblically as we do theology, obviously. And so when we define sin in our book, is we didn't want to just think in categories of total depravity or original sin, though those things are true, we also wanted to bring in other elements of the present human state, that being exile, which basically Mm -hmm. means separation from God, and what are our expectations uh, of separation with God. And so, obviously, in Genesis chapter 3, humanity is sent into exile for the first time, guarded by a flaming sword and cherubim, and they're now living outside the presence of God, something they've never lived before. And I think you could argue the entire story of the Bible, there are themes that run throughout. This isn't the only theme. But one of the main questions from Genesis chapter 3, moving forward, all the way to Revelation chapter 22, is how is God going to restore his presence to his creation? Uh, and we see that happening in Genesis chapter 12 in his covenant with Abraham, or in, in uh, Exodus 19 to 24 in his covenant with Moses, and eventually the giving of the tabernacle in his presence, or First Kings chapter 8, when when he indwell, dwells in his temple again, built by Solomon, and everybody rejoices, and then 
this question after the exile that happens in with Assyria and Babylon uh, in in the fifth century uh, BC is oh my gosh is God is God are God's promises going to be real and true and then the the great news of the New Testament opening up with you should call him Emmanuel because he is God with us which is a promise that our exile is coming to an end and what a joy that we have that Jesus then was with his disciples and with his people and then the shocking news that he's going to be crucified dead buried resurrected and before he does that he says and I'm leaving mm-hmm. I'm leaving again to his disciples and he leaves and ascends into heaven but he says it's okay because the holy spirit is coming and the holy spirit then fills the church and we are now as Paul says the tabernacling presence of God or the, the the temple of God with his people, which is great news. But then somehow paradoxically, P- Peter also calls the church elect exiles. So we're living in this already not yet or between two worlds of, of, of feeling the joy of life with God and delighting in him because we have the presence of the Holy Spirit. But we also feel the ongoing effects of Genesis chapter 3 in this world. And that's something that we, we, we wanted to highlight is not just uh, something that we experience now, but all humans since Genesis chapter 3 have. And since we have this exile, we have this ongoing hope of what the Bible ends with, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. So we don't place our hope in sociopolitical ideologies. We don't place our hope in personalities or in uh, social media conversations. So those things are good, and we can have beauty in this world, and we should rightly order our societies. But we all have to come to the realization that no matter how well a human rightly orders a society, the best ordered society is by King Jesus, and he's coming back to order society well and end our exile forever. I love it. Um all right, so we'll do. We're going to do a few questions here. We'll go back and forth. Um, give you both chance here, Jen. We'll start with you. What is your favorite doctrine? Uh, for me, it's atonement, which you highlight. I uh, do a great job of highlighting for its multifaceted accomplishments. That's what I love about it. But go ahead. What do you say? Well, I'm going to say the doctrine of God again, okay. <laughs> uh, and is. that's because I mean, if I, I'll, I'll give you a different one. I mean, I love the doctrine of God. That's the one I've loved the longest, I would say. But probably the one that I'm coming to appreciate with um, with uh, new interest is the doctrine of the church. I just think you know we we've got the I me mean, my minds in this age, and the church gives us we us uh, and community. And so I, I think that when we understand ourselves. Um, as uh, as more than just having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which I think has been an overemphasized, it's a beautiful message, but when you overemphasize it, it loses some of its beauty and people begin to believe that all they need is them in a relationship with Jesus Christ. But we're all saved into relationship with the church when we're saved into relationship with Christ. And uh, we're going to need the church if we're going to make it to the new Jerusalem. And so um, I'm, the doctrine of the church has taken on increasing beauty to me as I see how it is such a guard against individualism. And uh, not only that, but how it's such a celebration of collaboration and of standing shoulder to shoulder to advance uh, the work of the kingdom. Great. JT? Yeah, I'm kind of going to combine a little bit. So I wrote my master's thesis on the Doctrine of Atonement in Edwards, but I wrote my uh, doctoral work specifically on Trinitarianism and how a category called speech act theory, uh, which sounds super complex. It's not. It's just that God acts in his words. And I haven't gotten over this idea that when I read the Bible, God is with me and he's communing with me. And, and so the relationship between the Doctrine of Scripture and God the Father, God the Son as speakers— 
uh, to me. They're communing, and I can abide and enjoy communion with them. That's something that maybe I'll get over someday, but Lord willing, I won't. I just love the idea that God speaks to me and acts upon me and enjoys communing with me. Music to the soul of this person who studied systematic theology with Kevin Van Hooser. So there you go. Kevin was my external reader. So I was like, when I submitted that, I was like, oh, Kevin, be kind. Yeah. I got my lowest grade in that class. Let's just be clear. Didn't go too well for me. Um, All right. Um, Each one of you, again, uh, what's the next book someone should read after yours? You can save in one of your other books. That's fine if you want to do that. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, well, you know, I have the I have the twin heartburns of theological illiteracy and Bible illiteracy, and so I would yeah. probably ask that um, yeah. people would read Women of the Word next. And if you're not a woman, I would ask that you just gently cover the first two letters <laughs> in the word women and go ahead and see what you can find in there. Um, I, I do think, you know, these, these, these are two, uh, conversations that, that are, um, that are either helping or harming each other. It's not enough to simply be theologically, uh, informed. We also have to be biblically informed and those two things strengthen one another when they're done well. So yeah, I would love to see us grow in both theological and biblical literacy. Yeah, I think I think that that's why I said you can say your own thing because I think they are pretty well designed to follow up on this mm-hmm. book. They go into greater mm-hmm. detail and, and depth in both of those different areas. And by the same token, JT deep discipleship gives you a good vision more broadly of the church. But you can go a different direction if you want. I'll I'll go a different direction. Say oh, Jen's there book. you go. Does that no, make me feel? Oh, JT, you're so, <laughs> you're so slimy. <laughs> I don't know. I I, uh, ref- I just deflect, and I still am somehow the slimy one. No, I uh, so I, I I'm I'm so thankful that the Lord let me write that book. I, I still believe in it with every ounce of my being, and would be glad for people to to read it. Maybe, and I would also I really genuinely would say Jen's book. Both men and women should read it. It's a really helpful primer into hermeneutics and how to read the Bible well. If maybe somebody's wanting like a kind of more highbrow, given the conversation we just had, I would suggest Kevin Van Hooser's The Drama of Scripture, or The the Drama of Doctrine. It is a really helpful combination of like how to read the Bible well and some philosophical categories that help us read the Bible well. That was the book that really, for me personally, uh, like got me inflamed for the Word of God and how I could then take it from being kind of a more academic theologian to being a church-based theologian, believing that doctrine was for everyday people. Can we just make sure—I don't want to get some nasty emails here. Can we make sure that there's a lot of levels between those books that you just recommend right there? Huge like, Jen's levels. are great. Kevin's is also <laughs> great. But let's just say there's a few years of theological it's a jump. training between it's a, li- it's a little bit of a jump. Okay, I it's just don't jump. want those nasty emails from people like, I just got this drama of doctrine after I finished Women of the Word, and it was a bit of a leap. <laughs> it's, a, it's a jump. It's a jump. Okay. Both, but but the thing is, the thing is that Jen and I are trying to say, and there's actually been some online dialogue this week about this, of like, what's the relationship between academic theology uh, and okay. church-based theology? Yeah. And one of the things that Jen and I want to say is both matter. This does not yeah. need to be an either-or conversation mm-hmm. that wherever you are in your relationship with the Lord, you should be taking the next step in growing. Mm-hmm. Once you've enjoyed, hopefully you're a theologian or deep discipleship or uh, women of the word or others that are written at more of kind of an ecclesial level. I mean, we're thankful for that. And we're thankful for mm-hmm. publishers that are, are focused on that. But all of us are called to continue to grow yeah. and take that next step. And you can't grow unless you're reading things that create dissonance for you. If you're reading something you already yeah. agree with, 
then what do you, I'm not sure that that's useful or helpful. Reading is for the development of the disciple, and so we want to make sure that we're putting out resources there that allow people to, to kind of work muscles that they have not been working in a while. Yeah, I was going to say it's a little bit of like working out. You're gonna the strain is what makes you grow. That's what um, I hear. Yeah, <laughs> that's what you've been told. Um, all right. So last question. I'll give you a little bit of time to ponder on who is your favorite theologian and why. Um, but Jenna, I just thought I'd check. Am, am I going to see you at ETS again this year? Okay. You making see, the trip or? We, I'm so glad know, we're talking about this. I this. am too. I just, I to just give a little intro here. Yeah. I was wondering if there's going to be yeah. a window, and I've been yeah. waiting for my moment. The last yes. time the three of us were together, uh-huh. we were in San Diego, <laughs> and I kind of thought we might lead with this because it's the Evangelical <laughs> Theological Society. Uh-huh. What is theology mm-hmm. and who's it for? Mm-hmm. Because at that conference, there's about seven of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> JT was so JT than... was going to give a paper, and so to be a good supportive friend, and also because it was in San Diego, I was like. <laughs> JT, I want to come and I want to hear you present your paper. And so I and, and another beforehand, I colleague, tried to say, here's what this is. This is not the Yeah, he's like, you don't, he conference. kept trying to wave me off. He kept trying to wave me off. And so I'm like, no, I'm coming. And so then, so uh, then JT was like, he had this terrible thing he's always done where if someone wants to take a picture with me, he tries to take a picture of them taking a picture with me. And he I calls call it, it a selfie it, inception. Yeah. It's the rudest, rudest thing. So he says, I'm going to really enjoy getting all these selfie inceptions at ETS. And I said, JT, you're not going to get a single one because nobody is going to know me there. <laughs> Nobody's expecting to see me there. It's a it's I a gathering. It was right. it was theologians. I mean, I was like, no one's looking for me at this thing. I, I'm way too lowbrow for that. So so we get there and um, I'm checking in. And the woman who is running check in says, uh, are you um, are you the spouse of a presenter? And I said, no. And I'm like dying. I'm like, look at it, JT. And I'm like, you're going to owe me 50 bucks. And then, and then I said, and she said, well, are you the assistant of a presenter? And I'm like, I am not. <laughs> I'm having the best time. And I was like, yes, she is. <laughs> and then, yeah. And so then she asked me my name. And I said, I said, I'm just here to, you know, to participate. And she asked me my name. And I said, I'm Jen Wilkin. And then she just disappointingly says, oh, I've done, I've done your Bible studies. I like them very much. And so then JT gets all hyped up. So we go walking from there into the bookstore where I see my longtime friend and editor, Colin Hansen. And what does he yell at the top of his lungs? He says, what are you doing here? Who let you in? <laughs> And then JT had to pay me $50. I was just afraid that Colin was talking to me. I was like, I guess I need to leave. (laughs) So if anyone out there has a little bit of imposter syndrome in calling themselves a theologian, just know Colin Hansen is here to heighten that sense of imposter syndrome for you. To to put you in your place. The guy who got a B minus in Van Hooser's systematic theology class. That good enough understand speech act theory oh goodness uh, sakes <laughs> all right jen who's your favorite theologian <laughs> uh it's jt english oh i knew i was gonna say you can't <laughs> oh no gosh. it can't be anybody on this that call. was too much of a song okay all right um well the one the one who's given me the most practical help is rc Sproul. He's yeah. not only my favorite theologian, but he's been the greatest model to me of how to teach. And so, yeah, I just I'll never be able to uh, work off that debt. And clearly, you guys are writing in his wake at some. The, oh, his, everybody's a theologian, right? That's the title, or mm-hmm. everyone's a theologian. Mm-hmm. Um, that works. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. 
And JT? I'm thankful for Sproul's ministry as well. I would say personally, I benefited the most from Herman Bovink. And there's a couple of reasons for that that I highlight. The first is he was able to write at an academic and a relatively lay level. I mean, he wrote Mm -hmm. four volumes, Reform Dogmatics, but he also wrote The Wonderful Works of God, which was intended to be kind of more of a pastoral resource. And I appreciate him doing that. But I also just really appreciated more of his academic work. He's able to weave in multiple disciplines, and that's what systematic theologians are ultimately intending to do. It's not just... Uh, you know, categorizing the Bible that's part of it. It's also interacting with uh, church history and philosophy and contemporary cultural issues. And he, more than anybody that I know, was able to weave multiple disciplines together uh, that I find really helpful. And I read him and I'm like, I'm reading philosophy, history, cultural analysis all at the same time. And it's really enriching for me. That's good stuff. Oh, it's been fun. Um, the book is You Are a Theologian. It's new from B&H. I saw it on a bestseller list recently. It's done really well. I'm very excited about that. I think you've gotten a good sense here for the kind of groups that would benefit from it. I mentioned early on, it's just about everybody. I mean, church training, youth ministries, college, all that sort of stuff. It works really well, especially to do in a group. And I appreciate you guys and everything that you're doing. And I just, I'm always eager to amplify that vision that we need to ask more for doing for people doing theology in the church. It's absolutely necessary for so much of the work I do in cultural apologetics along the lines of what you said there, JT, on Herman Bavank. It, it absolutely goes hand in hand. You need a strong confessional base. you got to understand the Bible. you got to understand systematic theology before you're going to be able to effectively engage the culture. That's a necessary uh, building block. So uh, you are a theologian from B&H. Guests have been uh, JT English and Jen Wilkin. Come check us out and say hey at ETS. <laughs> Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for joining me today. Thanks for having us on, Colin. Thanks, as always, Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope.